Hello, and welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. This one entitled, Monopolies Are Very Bad, Except Big Education, Part 2. The date is January 2020. I left off my previous podcast by noting that one-time presidential candidate Amy Klobuchar used the term big technology. If a Minnesota police officer, Derek Chauvin, had not been implicated in the death of African-American George Floyd, touching off a series of protests throughout the United States, Klobuchar would have been the choice of Joe Biden as running mate. Additionally, given Biden's precarious health, she would have been the first female president of the United States. As it stands, that notation will go to Kamala Harris. This missed opportunity partly explains why Klobuchar has been issuing especially virulent statements, including this gem about the Facebook antitrust suit. Quote, Numerous reports have brought Facebook's long history of anti-competitive behavior to light. The company's acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp have made the social media landscape less competitive and worse for users. Big technology companies, like Facebook, should not have free reign to impose their will on the market, and they must be held accountable when they attempt to do so. I'm glad the FTC and state enforcers are taking action to stop Facebook's anti-competitive behavior, unquote. Both sides of the aisle talk about the dangers and imminent threats posed by, quote, big technology, unquote. But imagine where would we be in this COVID pandemic without it? No personal computing, no Wi-Fi, Zoom, online search, online information, or even the ability to communicate with friends over social media. Even allowing for the use of private data, the net benefits brought by big tech far outweigh the bad. Additionally, could a vaccine have been produced in less than a year with all the necessary coordination without big tech? I find making a case for the benefits of big tech easy. I would invite someone to argue that big education in the form of public schools and unionized teachers performs half so well. Yet where there has been an appetite to regulate, break up, and reorganize big tech, there is far less with big education. There are three anti-competitive behaviors that Klobuchar will not comment on, at least in the negative. One of those is government-sanctioned monopolies, such as utility, where real trusts can be found. One organization, Mission Data, describes itself as, quote, advocates for customer-friendly energy data access policies throughout the country to deliver benefits for consumers and enable an innovative, vibrant market for energy management services, unquote. In an article posted in 2018 on the Mission Data website, author Michael Murray writes, quote, looking at the railroads or or telecommunications industries throughout history, regulated monopolies have rarely, if ever, adopted to new conditions. Electric utilities will tend to exert their power over anything that touches the electricity system, whether that serves the public interest or not. Two, the highly regulated industries, such as steel, automobiles, and airlines, is where the United States has fallen behind. In my previous podcast, I noted that in technology, where the United States is still a recognized leader, the antitrust crusaders spend much of their time. It is as though they wish to do to those industries what has been done to the older ones where the United States is now a laggard. Writing for The Hill in 2017, Jonathan Hausenchild states, quote, Regulations have unintended consequences. 
Occasionally, these consequences arise from a regulatory agency not understanding technology or the agency structure as defined by Congress. Agencies created in the 1930s, 1950s, or similar decades were created long before the technologies they seek to regulate today were developed. Many regulatory agencies are ill-suited to regulate technology. Their approaches are steeped in bureaucratic history and based on laws that could not anticipate technological advances. Innovation looks to the future and more often than not disrupts existing interests as governments, federal and state, wrestle with regulating disruptive technologies, unquote. And finally, a report from the Heritage Foundation found that, quote, unnecessary and inefficient regulation at the federal, state, and local levels now costs the American people somewhere between $810 billion and $1.7 trillion per year even after taking account of the benefits of regulation, or between 8400 and 17100 per year per household, unquote. This is the type of regulation that the antitrust laws would put on Microsoft and today on Facebook. And three, there is one overriding monopoly that affects nearly every American that no government entity wishes to touch, and that is big education. There are currently 53 million students enrolled in K-12 education. 94% of those are in public education. Writing in 2006 for the Center for Education Reform, author Michael J. O'Neill penned a piece called Teachers' Unions as Monopoly. In this piece, O'Neill notes, quote, The teachers' union cartel is a larcenous monopoly. Like 19th century robber barons, They're compounding their larceny by trying to enlist the state to force consumers of their product to fund their monopoly, unquote. O'Neill's comparison is not quite apples to apples. At its peak, Standard Oil controlled 90% of refining capacity in the United States, but that figure was down to 64% by the 1911 breakup of the company. We can only wish that 36% of American students were enrolled in private education. O'Neill goes on to write about one of the many areas where public teachers' unions use both their considerable financial might and the coercive power of government to crush a potential rival, charter schools. Quote, for years, the teachers' unions have sustained a PR campaign that should be the envy of corporate CEOs everywhere. Take the issue of charter schools. Charters expose the cost bloat and inefficiency of the typical school system by doing a better job for about a third less money. They do so primarily by reining in administrative costs in in contrast to school systems generally. In 1960, American public schools limped along with one administrator for every 13.6 students. By 2002, they needed one for every 8.1 students. The unions, predictably, maintain ongoing jihad against charters, wanting the public to believe they siphon money away from the real public schools though maybe it's the real schools that are siphoning away money from charters and other alternatives that would provide taxpayers and students and children better results for less money. Yet, in 2005, the National Education Association, the nation's largest teachers union, donated $500,000 to a Washington state anti-charter group called Protect Our Public Schools in Orwellian name given that charters are public, unquote.
Milton Friedman also understood the nature of big education stranglehold on the schools, especially judging whether one teacher or one school is superior to another. Writing in 1983, Friedman states, quote, Someone must judge merit, determine who is meritorious and who not, and by how much the one is more meritorious than the other. In a competitive market economy, consumers render that judgment. Every private school must satisfy its customers, parents paying tuition, and benefactors who contribute funds to the school. Every private school now pays its teachers according to their merit. If it did not, its better teachers would be hired away by its competitors, and it would be left with the poorer ones. Its customers would sooner or later discover what is happening and desert it. The situation is wholly different with a socialist enterprise like public school system, or for that matter, a private monopoly. The true customers of public schools, parents and children, have come to exercise less and less influence over the schools as the schools have become more and more centralized and bureaucratic. When school districts were numerous and small, parents could exercise considerable influence. A superintendent or principal who misjudged the merit of teachers in the eyes of the consumers would not have remained in their positions for long. The situation has changed drastically in the past half century. The number of school districts declined from 130,000 to 16,000, unquote. Friedman's views, expressed 39 years ago, has only gotten worse. The National Right to Work Committee states, quote, In a recent policy analysis for the Washington, D.C.-based Cato Institute, University of Texas economist Stan Leibowitz and UT Research Fellow Matthew Kelly quantitatively demonstrate that union monopolists make schools less effective and more costly, unquote. One of the favorite tactics of trust busters, ranging from Ida Tarbell and her war on Standard Oil to Klobuchar, is to assign a villain. For Tarbell, it was Standard Oil founder John D. Rockefeller. Quote, John D. Rockefeller didn't care about anyone. He did anything to be rich and be the only company standing without competition he destroyed anyone else, unquote. This was not the stuff of a sober and objective assessment of monopoly. For Tarbell, whose father's business lost in competition with Standard, it was always personal. And given her vitriol, the reticent Rockefeller provided an excellent target. This is a pattern with these antitrust suits. In the case against Microsoft, Bill Gates was portrayed as the villain. In a piece in The Ringer, it is noted that, quote, on the first day of the trial, famed lead prosecutor David Bowies made a videotaped deposition of Bill Gates, the centerpiece of his opening arguments, unquote. In a piece in Wired magazine, penned by John Heilman, the writer states, quote, the slavish fealty accorded Gates at Microsoft draws gales of derision from critics and competitors. Netscape's former counsel, Roberta Katz said it was the blind obedience, the willingness to suspend all judgment and follow the party line, all this zombie-like devotion to the maximum leader that led Microsoft inexorably to its fate in the courts, unquote. It should be noted that Roberta Katz of Netscape was one of the companies that Microsoft at the time was beating in the marketplace. And regarding the Facebook antitrust suit, the government was handed a villain on a silver platter 10 years ago when the social network was released. 
That was a movie in which the real-life CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, had been portrayed. Now, there was also a movie called Antitrust in Gates's case, but the Gatesian character is called Gary Winston. He is fictional, and Winston is not even the star. Not so with The Social Network. The movie portrays the beginning of Facebook, and Jesse Eisenberg, who plays real-life Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, is described by the great movie reviewer Roger, Roger Ebert in the following passage. Quote, Erica gets fed up, calls him, Zuckerberg, an asshole, and walks out. Erica is right. Unquote. Writing for the Washington Post about the real-life Zuckerberg, technology writers Craig Timberg and Drew Harwell go even further than the movie's devious character. In their description, Zuckerberg goes from infuriating to terrifying. In calling for the breakup of his $800 billion company, federal and state officials portray Zuckerberg, who could more easily star in a Silicon Valley update to The Godfather. Rivals cower at the thought of the wrath of Mark as he schemes to eliminate competitors who face being snuffed out if they defy him. According to the 123-page complaint from state officials, one anecdote central to the cases depicts Instagram co-founder Kevin Systrom seeking advice from a company investor while considering a $1 billion offer to sell his company to Facebook in 2012. Will he go into destroy mode if I say no? The answer, probably. Systrom soon decided to sell, making an offer that, in the telling of state and federal officials, he couldn't really refuse. Unquote. Forget Vito Corleone or Tony Soprano whacking some mob rat. The real-life victim of this mafia don is the guys looking to get a billion dollars from Zuckerberg? Where can I go to run afoul of Mark Zuckerberg? Are these portrayals of Rockefeller, Gates, and Zuckerberg accurate? Almost certainly not. But antitrust is not about market forces. It's not even about competition. It's about politics. And in this milieu, optics matter. Now, optics matter in the perpetual monopoly maintained over education by a host of interested party, but most of all by the two uber-powerful teachers unions the National Education Association, and the American Federation of Teachers. The NEA and AFT are beyond cunning, because aside from the lobbying, which is one of their core functions, their presidents or leaders maintain a very low profile. Quick, who is Becky Pringle? No, she is not an heiress to a potato chip fortune. Whereas five of ten Americans can name Bill Gates, not 100 outside of teachers would know who she is. Of course, she's not been on the job that long because the NEA cleverly rotates their presidents. Not so with the American Federation of Teachers. Randy Weingarten has been the leader of this union for 12 years, but could two out of 10 Americans identify who she is? There are two unions with two overlapping missions that make it hard to pin down our mediocrity in education on one overall organization. Now, with more than 1.7 million members, affiliated with the AFL of CIO, which is the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations, one of the largest unions in the country, and having 43 state and 3,000 state affiliates. The AFT, or American Federation of Teachers, is a union organization representing classroom teachers. The NEA has approximately 3 million members, headquartered in Washington, D.C., 
and has affiliates in every state, more than 14,000 local affiliates. The National Education Association's history dates back to all the way to 1857. And historically, one of the NEA's primary goals has been to nationalize the American school system. That's right, nationalize it. All of education run out of Washington, D.C. In the 1960s, school directors, officers, and university professors predominantly carried out the NEA's work. These leaders would take the discussed proposals to their respective local communities, keep in mind that local community part, for possible implementation. Requests were mostly concentrated on collective bargaining for teachers' rights protection and lobbying for educational issues. Notice what's not discussed in any of these mission statements. I think you all could kind of figure that out. And again, note NEA's 14,000 local affiliates. This is another clever design. This decentralized structure means that the organization faces not the bureaucrats in Washington, but often a local teacher. Consider Becky Pringle's description. Becky, note the use of the first name. I'm actually taking this content directly from their website. So I am not using Becky. I would use Pringle. But on their website, they use Becky, the first name. If I were to use that and describe her as Becky, that is considered in some circles to be almost misogynistic. But it is just fine here. Now, Becky, as I put it before, is described as a middle school science teacher with 31 years of classroom experience. Becky Pringle is not sitting atop a massive organization with over 3 million members. No, she's a middle school science teacher, just like the ones we all had and our children have today. There is always that teacher who reached out and made a positive impact on your child, the one who became a model and mentor to that child, and that teacher is an NEA member. Think about how difficult it is to assail a union, not when it's some far distant figure, not some evil uh, sounding mafioso type like Mark Zuckerberg. No, when we attack the NEA, we are attacking a teacher who might have made an impact on our lives, or so we are led to believe. Now, it is one thing to blame Zuckerberg for your privacy being monetized, or Rockefeller because your business was ruined. But how can one blame the NEA when Mrs. Jones, the best teacher your child ever had, was a member? You'd play a simple word game. Let's really think about these teachers. Count how many teachers your child encountered over their 12-year span in public education. And I'm omitting the academy. I'm omitting college out of this. Then divide the number by truly exceptional and impactful teachers. Assuming an average of one teacher for grades 1 through 5 and 5 for grades 6 through 12 each. Add in some specialists in music, PE, and drama. That is around 40 teachers in that K through 12 category. Now, how many fit into that particular category of excellence? The ones who you remember, the ones who you talk about, the ones who made that positive impact upon your child. Out of those 40, was it 10? Was it five? Less? If the number is less than 15, remember, they are with your child every single day. The numbers bear out the prevailing mediocrity of too many teachers. Now, how can I make that charge? Got a lot of evidence. According to the left-wing magazine, The Atlantic, in a 2013 article written by Julia Ryan, quote, the U.S. education system is 
mediocre compared to the rest of the world, according to an international ranking of OECD countries. And Pew Research supports this kind of research. They are a accredited known research organization. According to these studies on the OECD countries, more than half a million 15-year-olds around the world took the program for international study assessment in 2012. The test, which is administered every three years and focuses largely on math, but includes minor sections in science and reading, is often used as a snapshot of the global state of education. The results published today show the U.S. trailing behind educational powerhouses like Korea and Finland. Not much has changed since 2000 when the U.S. scored along with the OECD average in every subject. This year, the U.S. scores below average in math and ranks 17th among the 34 OECD countries. It scores close to the OECD average in science and reading and ranks 21st in science and 17th in reading, unquote. Now, the NEA and AFT will tell you that it is money or the lack thereof that is the problem. Quote, the only way to make sure all learners have the tools and schools they need to succeed is to properly fund every aspect of public education, unquote. Every aspect? The U.S. ranks fifth in spending per student. Only Austria, Luxembourg, Norway, and Switzerland spend more. The United States spends far more per student than Japan, China, South Korea, and the United Kingdom, which all did far better on international tests. So the next explanation is that the U.S. tests are brought down by the disadvantage, such as African-American minorities where the spend isn't as great. That's the argument. If this is the case, why do District of Columbia students, which are primarily African-Americans, I think the number is 67%, and where the average spend per student is $22,000, which is $9,000 higher than the U.S. average, and $12,000 higher than the global average, fare so poorly. In a 2019 article in NPR about D.C. schools, writer Debbie Truong notes, quote, just 37% of D.C. students were prepared for college English and only 31% for college math in the 2018-2019 school year, unquote. In 1960, annual spending on public education nationwide was about $3,000 per student. In the years since 1960, that amount has swollen to over $9,400 per student. Those are inflation-adjusted dollars, so spending on public education in real terms has more than tripled with dubious results. Per that paper by Leibowitz and Kelly, the work states, quote, no significant relationship is found between spending and student performance, either in magnitude or statistical significance. This does not necessarily imply that spending overall does not affect outcomes, assuming causality, but merely that most states have reached a sufficient level of spending such that additional spending does not appear to be related to achievement as measured by these test scores. Let's look at uh, uh, how teachers can earn extra money, and they can do so in two different ways. The first is through seniority, and the second is through achieving certifications. This is a synergy between education colleges the same ones that, quote, doctor, unquote, Jill Biden works at, and teachers. Teachers take classes and spend money on these colleges to obtain degrees. The colleges offer easy, I have actually taken some of these classes 
and they are in fact elementary. They offer easy courses and generous grading to fashion the, the degrees that boost teacher pay. The one thing you will not see is a better teacher getting more money through merit pay. If a principal could decide which salaries would negate the union's power to dictate wage scale and drive collective bargaining, which is one of the reasons that unions fight merit pay and by extension charter schools so vigorously. Now, another consistent argument from the unions is that smaller class sizes equate to more excellent student performance. Again, Kelly and Louis Bowitz, quote, though having more students per teacher are theorized to be negatively related to student performance, the empirical literature largely fails to find consistent effects of student-teacher ratios and class size on student performance, unquote. Now, there are known knowns and unknown unknowns. What is certain, what is absolutely known, is that to achieve smaller class sizes, school districts would have to hire more teachers, which equates to more union dues and greater union power. Kelly and Leibowitz finalized their thoughts with the following, quote, certain Southern and Western states, such as Florida and Texas, have much better student performances than appears to be the case when student heterogeneity is not taken into account. Other states, such as Maine and Rhode Island and New England, fall substantially. These results were encounter to the conventional wisdom that the best education is found in northern and eastern states with powerful unions and high expenditures. The stated primary focus of the unions is on the students, or so they say, quote, all students deserve schools with the resources, programs, and curriculum to nurture their curiosity, imagination, spirit, talents, and desire to learn, unquote. Yet, go to those pages the pages of the NEA and the EFT, and yet make one or two clicks and the real story emerges. Quote, our schools have a qualified, caring, diverse, and stable workforce. Safe and affirming schools are a core element of student success. When students feel they are not welcome, their ability to learn and thrive is diminished. We can create schools where every student can learn, regardless of their skin color, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, or ability, unquote. This is where teachers are focused. Now, remember that description about Pringle? Her description leads with her being a teacher, which then serves as a shield against the furtherance of her description. Quote, distinguished herself as a fierce social justice warrior and defender of educator rights, unquote. The leader of three million teachers is self-described as part of the SJW crowd. Of course, none of that ideology would ever permeate the classroom, except the one she maintained. And what exactly is education rights? Quote, an education is a civil right, and any child who does not feel safe coming to school is being denied their civil right. We are working tirelessly to dismantle systems of oppression that prevent children from accessing a great public education because of their race, gender, sexual orientation, culture, or nationality, unquote. This description is far more about social justice than it is for the greater good or the learning that should go on within the classroom. 
Note how little discussion on the core NEA website talks about reading, writing, math, science, or physical education. Instead, it is all ideology. It would be hard to swap a civil rights websuit such as Black Lives Matter for this page. It is not that many of these things are unnecessary. Of course all students should feel safe and they should feel affirmed when they attend their public school. But they should also, when in their public schools, be able to read and to write and to do math and to learn science. These are primarily what our schools should be doing. But rather, with the public unions, this is just one of the three things that really matter. Number one, social justice wars. Number two, more money per teacher. And number three, more teachers, because that equates to more union dues and greater power, as I've stated before. They talk of the students, but they focus on other things. If nothing else made their real priorities more transparent, it was the COVID pandemic. Writing in the Wall Street Journal, author David R. Henderson notes, quote, If you have school-aged children, you may be wondering if they'll ever get an education. On Tuesday, this would have been in August of 2020, the American Federation of Teachers, the second largest education union, threatened, quote, safety strikes, unquote, if reopening plans aren't to its liking. Some state and local governments are insisting that public K-12 through schooling this fall will be conducted online three to five days a week, three, and imposing stringent conditions on those students who make it to the classroom, unquote. The Federalist John Daniel Davidson adds, quote, then there are teachers unions. More than any other group during this pandemic, teachers unions have shown themselves to be abjectly selfish, hyper-political, and intransigent about teaching during the pandemic. They are willing to lie about the science behind COVID-19 transmission and shamelessly stoke fear to advance their partisan agenda. Just about the last thing these unions seem to care about is educating children or helping the country get back on its feet, unquote. This is not about the pandemic. The unions have always cared more about union power than the students. All COVID has done is pull the curtain aside. So given the monopolistic power, what is to be done? Well, there are two very simple solutions. First, provide each parent with a voucher for per student and enable them to choose the school to which their student attends. Now, this would force actual competition, the same thing that the Federal Trade Commission continues to espouse, certainly they did in the Facebook case, beyond zip codes. Initially, there would be confusion as parents opt for better performing schools and those schools quickly get loaded up. But this would force the lesser schools to compete for the students by trying real reform, including hiring better teachers. Now, this works exceptionally well during the pandemic. Davidson notes, quote, issue vouchers to families and let them decide how best to educate their children this fall. Specifically, they could create education savings accounts, which give parents a savings account dedicated to their kids' education. The state deposits the child's public education dollars into the account and parents can use it for various things like online classes, a private tutor, private school tuition, whatever especially during the pandemic, it's a handy way to help people fit their child's education to specific local circumstances, unquote. The second reform is to enable principals 
to have the same hiring and firing power similar to that in the private sector. Good teachers in, bad teachers out. Me personally, having once been a teacher, I guarantee the principals know the wheat from the chaff. These seem like such simple reforms, but keep in mind, both would destroy the power of the unions. Additionally, the teachers themselves, like the unions, enjoy these protections. And the simple fact that an organization size can make or break local politicians who may try to attempt these reforms. Consider the state of California and this gem from the CalSTRS website. Quote, you can retire, this is your teachers, you can retire at age 55 with at least five years of service credit. Members under CalSTRS 2% at 60 also have the option to retire at age 50 with at least 30 years of service credit, unquote. So let me be straight on this. A teacher who retires at 50 after 30 years of service and lives to the average age of 81, that's the average age of, uh, of humans in this country, will have been retired longer than they worked. Retired longer than they worked. That is why reform will not begin with the teachers. There are two primary impediments to these reforms. The obvious is the Leviathan, that is big education, as I have stated before. And the second is the parents themselves. My mother, a sagacious woman, once said that, quote, parents are not rational about their children, unquote. People want choices with cars, houses, and yes, Senator Warren, they want choices in health care. But as noted above, parents are just not that rational when it comes to education. The simple solution, for those who can afford it, is to move to a better district. But for those who do not have that kind of money, the kind of money to simply uproot their family and buy a more expensive location, they have to endure the ministrations of this massive big education monopoly. And part of the reason that these parents do not act in the best interests of their children, do not fight these unions, do not try to work their local school boards, is because they have a misplaced adoration of the few teachers who have made a positive difference in their children's lives. It is time for American parents to sober up and look at education as they do everything else. Is a choice of schools better? Is a monopoly the best use of their hard-earned tax dollars? Does an excellent teacher do better with 25 or 30 kids than a mediocrity does with 20? These are the questions that American parents need to ask, and they need to ask them now. When Ida Tarbell began writing her biased, damning portraits of Standard Oil in 1904 in McClure's magazine, it was only seven years later, seven years later, that Standard Oil was broken up. In 1977, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, one of the great advocates of choice in education, stated, quote, Our private schools embody these values. They provide diversity to the society, choices to students and their parents, and a rich array of distinctive educational offerings that even the finest of public institutions may find difficult to supply, not least because they are public, and must embody generalized values. There is something larger involved here. It is time liberalism redefined its purposes in the area of education. State monopoly is no more appropriate to liberal beliefs in this field than in any other. Unquote.
43 years after Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote those words, our education system falls further behind and the public union monopoly is more powerful than ever. I hope you have enjoyed this Conservative Historian podcast. Please check out other podcasts on our website, www.conservativehistorian.com, and also check out our other columns, videos, essays, and book reviews. Thank you very much for listening.